You're listening to episode 32 of Daughters on Fire with your hosts, Robin Arab and Melissa Burton. In today's episode, I get to deep dive with Kelsey Williams from the Alzheimer's Association. I'm so excited to get to bring you this interview. Not only is Kelsey just incredibly sweet and knowledgeable about what she provides, but we get to talk about the experiences that caregivers have when they reach out to the Alzheimer's Association. Robin and I both co-facilitate support groups we have for years, and we now do one together. And so we kind of give you a picture of what support groups can do as a benefit to caregivers on this long, difficult journey. So join us as we deep dive with Kelsey Williams. Are you stressed, burned out, and looking for answers as you care for an aging parent? If you are, this podcast is for you. Here you will receive actionable advice from seasoned professionals, validation and compassion for the incredibly tough job you are doing, and most importantly, supportive love from a community of like-minded warriors. You're not alone. Join this powerful community as we support you on your complicated journey and help you transform into an empowered and calmer caregiver. All right, welcome back everybody. This is Melissa and I am so excited today to have another amazing interview with Kelsey Williams. So a little bit of a backstory. Kelsey Williams is with the Alzheimer's Association here in Middle Tennessee, but there's more to this. So as some of you may or may not know, Robin and I co-facilitate a support group here in the Franklin area, now virtual. We have for, gosh, I think it's been about a year now, mm-hmm. but we've also done support groups for years, both of us, with this unbelievable organization. And it's kind of with our experience in these support groups and professionally that led us to creating Daughters on Fire. So with that in mind, Kelsey has walked us through ever since she's been in her role where she is, she's walked us through some of the ups and downs of navigating and the training around support groups. So I thought what better person to come on and talk about what it feels like, what support looks like, kind of information it can give us right now as we're going through uncertain times. So again, It's Kelsey Williams, the manager of programs in Middle Tennessee, Alzheimer's Association, Tennessee chapter. She is a manages the volunteers, everybody who's out there doing the support group. She does training, recruiting, and she is really just a support guru. She is young and vibrant, but wise beyond her years. And so Kelsey, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you today. And please fill us all in on anything I left out. Well, thanks so much. That was a very warm welcome, probably not fully deserved, but I appreciate it. (laughs) Of course it is. Of course it is. I I don't embellish, Kelsey. (laughs) Of course not. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. As you said, I'm the Middle Tennessee Program Manager with the Alzheimer's Association. I've been with our organization almost four years. It'll be four years in October. But my first role was actually in fundraising. So for three years, I did The Longest Day, which is our do-it-yourself fundraiser centered on the summer solstice. And for two of those years, I also led Walked In Alzheimer's in the Tullahoma Lynchburg area. But my connection to this disease really goes beyond my work experience. I actually got this position a month after I lost my own grandmother to Alzheimer's. And so now being in this role 
and in this space where I'm able to support other people, so much of what guides me is what I wish my family would have had when we were going through this. And leading with that and supporting families and educating them on different facets of this disease, that's a huge motivator is helping families, giving them some level of support that we didn't have. And you know far too well, this disease, this journey, this wandering, as some people like to call the journey with Alzheimer's, it's never going to be easy. Until we have a cure, until we have effective treatment, this is never going to be an easy thing for anyone to go through. But my goal in this role is to make it just one little bit easier for caregivers to not feel like they're alone, for people that have just been diagnosed to feel like they have the opportunity to connect with people, that they're not the only ones, unfortunately, they're not the only ones going through this. And by coming together and supporting one another, we can make this journey, this wandering, just a little bit easier in having connection to our community. I totally agree. And the power of connection is part of what makes the journey sustainable. Connection and information and then the incredible amount of love that fires and fuels the caregivers forward. So I think that when they're alone and isolated, kind of like you explained, either isolated from the information and knowing what's out there, isolated from community and knowing that they are not alone and they can not only gain support from someone, but they can also offer support. And I think that's very powerful. I remember in a support group that I I was a part of many years ago, I had this idea as everybody was talking and it has stuck with me. It was like everybody is climbing this mountain together and those ahead of you are guiding you and you're grabbing onto their experiences and their hand and those behind you, you're throwing your hand backward. And it's this chain of people connected that are moving over this obstacle. And there is, and I've seen so many people, I know you have too, that did essentially what you did, which is once the journey is over, you're like, I have the power of um, perspective. I have the power of information and the power of healing now that I can help other people who are in the middle of it. And that, and that's kind of, again, where Robin and I are coming from as well in different ways. So it's, it's an amazing synergy when it all comes together. It is. And I think that visual is such a beautiful one to be led and to lead, mm-hmm. you know, from your and own you experience. At the same time, you literally can do it at the same time because you are further along than somebody else and somebody is further along than you. I know. So often when people come to the association, whether they email me directly, whether they contact our 24-7 helpline, you know, one of the things I so often do is refer people to support groups because of exactly what you just said. You know, I can give some level of, of support and information and experience from what I've seen, from what I've gone through myself. But so much of what's helpful is when you're in a support group with someone that might be a little bit further along in, you know, the progression than you might be. Those tips, those tricks, those little things to keep you sane and to keep you going, that when that's shared among caregivers, I think it's one of the most powerful things I've ever experienced is seeing that one-on-one 
direction, suggestion, and care. There are times when somebody is wondering, am I normal? Am I doing this right? Is this right? And they offer some tip that they've discovered and everybody lights up like that's such a good idea. And all of a sudden in that moment, they're like, I'm doing this right. You know, not only that, but I'm doing something that is helpful for other people. And that goes back and forth. And yeah, so when you become an educator in what you're going through, all of a sudden you feel so much more confident in what you're doing. Certainly so. And I think a common misconception that people have with caregiving with Alzheimer's in general, because of the previous stigma and perhaps some still there, you don't know who all is going through this. You know, you might think that you're the only one in your network or in your circle that is experiencing this, but there's over 5 million Americans living with Alzheimer's. There's over 120,000 Tennesseans. And even more than that number, you have 444,000 caregivers in the state of Tennessee, unpaid family caregivers. That's a large group of people. And one thing at the association that we know is, unfortunately, we're not reaching nearly as many of those as we as we would like to be. That's why I'm so grateful to you and to Robin and to all the volunteers that partner with us because there's kind of this recognition probably in the last couple of years that we can't reach every single person on our own. You know, I'm one human covering 36 middle Tennessee counties for the association. There's only so much I can do. I can fill in time in a day. And I try to fill that time as best I possibly can support as many families as I can, but I can't reach everyone. And that's why I'm so grateful to you guys and to all of our volunteers that work with us because you're, you know, sharing the impact of the association, sharing what resources we have available, whether they're virtual, whether they're through our website and connecting these people in your own networks that need resources, that need support back to us. And it's such a powerful thing to see how many more people we've been reaching and touching just over the last couple of years than even long before that. Yeah, that's great. I also am curious from your perspective, how this move from in-person to virtual has impacted. You obviously are kind of the hub of the wheel. A lot of people call you first. And I'd love to hear your stories. I know we had talked about it before we, we got on this call today of some of your experiences. And I think it's fascinating of how outreach with your organization is changing in the face of this pandemic and how we're having to adjust. I know Robin and I took our most like, I think most groups went online. The ones that didn't go online probably stopped meeting for a while. And I don't know if they're meeting again, but our virtual group changed very, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's about the same size, but it's different people. It's people that probably would not have been able to come to us before. So it's a very interesting dynamic. The people who stopped coming, I think their lives got complicated for other reasons. I don't think that's the reason why they stopped coming online. Other people, the disease progressed and maybe they're at a different stage or they lost a loved one. I know that was some people in our group. So I'm curious what you're seeing. That's just me and my microcosm. What are you seeing in the bigger picture? So from kind of a nationwide standpoint, we've had a lot of virtual programs since we've transitioned 
it was about the middle, beginning middle of March when we moved to work from home. And pretty quickly, we transitioned everything that we do virtual. So all of our staff are working from home. You know, this disease is one that it oftentimes, not always, involves vulnerable older populations who are particularly at risk to complications from COVID-19. And so because of that, we've been very conservative, both when we went virtual and then even in conversations to be back. But we haven't stopped working. We have very much kept this forward motion, both in support of families, but also in research and education and so many other kind of vessels. So the way we've kind of evolved is by hosting so many things virtually. You've mentioned the virtual support groups. Nationwide, we've had over 10,700 virtual support group meetings since March, which is a lot. And we've had over 4,100 virtual educational webinars and over 800 early stage social engagement programs. So we know virtual is a little bit different. You don't quite get that in-person connection. Sometimes it's awkward to figure out when it's your time to talk. And I think, you know, these struggles are things that people in all industries have been been navigating because this virtual world is new to so many of us. But I've been really proud of how important it has been to our organization to continue this mission, to continue connecting with and supporting families as, as we traverse this kind of unprecedented time. And nationwide with all of these, you know, the town halls, this virtual support groups, these social engagement programs, we've had over 75,000 different people participate in some level of virtual meeting since March. I didn't pull specifically Tennessee numbers from that, but I want to say when I looked at those relatively recently, you know, we're in the probably 500 to 1,000 range of, of different individual people. And it's been interesting because, you know, we know there's so many negative things associated with this period. There's loss of job, loss of life, loss of business, so many of these things that are really, really difficult. And seeing that in people, it's really a hard thing as a particularly empathetic person. It just breaks my heart whenever I hear and read about these stories. One positive that I'm taking from this is that we are reaching new people. There are people that care for their loved ones in the home and getting out and going to an event is not really possible. Or there are people that live in more rural areas where perhaps we don't have quite as many in-person programming or we don't have it when it's convenient for them. They can like try out different ones Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be limited to what day of the week they can go or, you know, get out of the house or what... Um, easiest location they can get to. Yeah. And so you're seeing so many different new people attending these virtual educational webinars, the support groups, as you mentioned, and you've experienced and I've experienced, sometimes we have people from out of state that they have stumbled upon a particular support group or a particular education program through our community resource finder, which is a resource we have in partnership with AARP. It's where all of our kind of public-facing events are listed. So these support groups, teletown halls, education programs. But it's also where we list a lot of community resources. 
you know, if you're looking for an elder lawyer, a neurologist, assisted living community, kind of all of that is packed into the community resource finder. And so, you know, you have someone in New York that's looking for something by zip code, but because these are all virtual, theoretically, anyone can attend any program in any state that that they want to, which has been kind of cool to connect with people nationwide or to provide a service that someone in another state is looking for, but perhaps their state doesn't have it at the time that they need it. So we're able to kind of step in and provide that support to them. It's been a really cool, cool thing to, to watch and to experience thus far. What I've seen as a spectator, if you will, is that it's also impacted advocacy. Now, of course, now more than ever, I think people stepping up and really advocating for loved ones that are falling through the cracks, especially in facility settings. But y'all have done such a great job with the virtual town hall, speaking with decision makers and policymakers, and even our governor, I think uh, you had one with him on there. And that is so powerful. And then you're recording it because it's virtual. So then people can go back and listen to it, even if they weren't able to attend. So I don't know how much of that is new, how much of that is in response to the huge need for us to make our voices heard right now. But I can tell you, I have seen more ag- advocacy with my clients than I have ever seen before. I've seen that they are, they feel one, at one point, they kind of felt a level of despair and sadness and, you know, really discouraged over what was happening, especially with their loved ones in memory care facilities, you know, access to them and the care and all that. And that went from what I was talking about, despair and sadness to empowerment with advocacy and so I'm seeing this whole new avenue of speaking up and making change possible. And I think that's really powerful. And I don't tell me your thoughts on what you're seeing with that. Yeah, I would agree completely with that. I think it's providing a space and an opportunity for someone to utilize their story, some heartbreaking experiences that they have had that are representative of the experiences of so many and to share those with our elected officials to have certain priorities of our own, you know, our own priorities become the priorities of our elected officials. So I know our director of public policy and advocacy, Rachel Blackhurst has done really a phenomenal job of still connecting with our, you know, Tennessee officials as well as our federal officials. And we have had, you know, many of those teletown halls that you talked about And then these campaigns, the one that we have right now is about reconciling and reuniting families that have been separated because of memory care restrictions and getting access and appropriate and sufficient access to rapid COVID tests at these facilities so that a loved one could come, get the test, find out that they're negative and actually see their mother or their spouse or their father Mm -hmm. or their sibling. Because we're now many, many months into this and CDC guidelines and everything protecting these vulnerable populations went into effect to keep people safe. But we're now almost half a year into the social isolation. It's caused in the decline in, you know, function, the decline in um, just behavior of these people that are in assisted living communities. 
So it's been really neat to see people get involved. None of us like to feel helpless. And so providing this chance for people to use their voice to make a significant impact, I think has been a pretty powerful thing to watch. As you said, you know, not just being a source of frustration, but actually channeling that frustration into legislative change, I think is a pretty powerful thing to to watch and to see our constituents experience. It changes everything. I mean, it changes the future for everybody going through this. And I think everybody, you know, is probably a lot of people are familiar with the name Alzheimer's Association, and it may be known for different things, for the fundraising to, you know, make an impact, um, eradicating the disease, like you were saying, the longest day and the walk to end Alzheimer's, all of that. And then there's the support groups and the support for those who are going through it. Sometimes people might not be as in tuned with the advocacy, you know, the, the, the um, policy making arm of it. And so in some ways, all of those are coming to the forefront. Like, let's get rid of this disease if we can, so we don't have to go through it. Let's make sure that families have the support and loved ones have the support from a policy standpoint. You know, what were the unintended consequences of what was happening with the, you know, safe at all costs became, okay, well, there's, you know, the social isolation and you not having loved ones in facilities that are advocating for them and they know them best. I think facility living works best when it's a partnership between family and professionals. And so we're seeing that that's what that looks like when one of the most important legs that hold that up is, is really missing. So I love what you all are doing and you're such a strong organization that's probably been key in this for so many reasons. And I think one last thing I'll say with the advocacy is I really think it's a space where people also find that connection in that community that we've talked about. Many people find it in support groups or they find it in being on the Walked End Alzheimer's Committee or the Longest Day Young Professionals Boards, but finding people with similar experiences and similar passions, I think can really help you to know that you're not alone, but it's also a source of support. And honestly, it's kind of a source of self-care, recognizing your stress, but then channeling that stress into something productive and into something positive, I think is a benefit to, to all that are involved in that space. Like part of healing process. Definitely so. And I know we've talked before about the importance of, of self-care for for our families. And we so often get the response of, well, I don't have time for that. But we both know that when you make time, when you recognize your own health, your own wellness is important, it makes your experience as a caregiver an easier one. Not only that, it makes them a better caregiver. You can't be a strong, in-tuned, empathetic caregiver if you're not in-tuned and empathetic to your own needs, right? You, You can't pour from an empty vessel. Absolutely. And so I'm so grateful to you because I think support groups are such an opportunity and a space for people to find that support and to pour into themselves 
so that they can pour out onto others as well. Yeah. And then of course the more one-on-one with my, with my clients as well, that that's been very powerful too, for people to have that sacred one-on-one space. When I'm with my clients in that space, I tell them, this is the one place you come to that you do not have to ask me how I'm doing. It is 100% about you. (laughs) Some of them like they can't even stop that, that, from coming out of their mouth. And so I oblige, of course, but we kind of joke around about it. And I'm like, really, you don't have to ask. <laughs> it, 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 I won't even notice if you don't ask me how I'm doing, because it is all about you. But back to the getting involved after your journey, I think it is a part of the healing process, because so many times people have had so much of their bandwidth being taken up with this disease and caregiving that when it's over, there's this emptiness of purpose and just action, if you will. And so sometimes to bridge the healing process is to funnel all of that knowledge they have about the disease, all of the emotions they have with the disease into the programs like you have into, you know, leading support groups, into becoming an advocate or a fundraiser and all of this helps them find purpose and connection that they focused on this disease that's now over. It helps them bridge that gap and heal as as they find meaning. And it may be something that is a part of their lives for the rest of their lives. It may be it's a part of their lives for a season mm-hmm. until they, they move to a different place in time in their hearts and their minds. But it's powerful to take that and make meaning out of it. Absolutely. And we've seen that story with so many of our volunteers and our partners and our advocates, whether it's channeling that story into healing for a period, as you said, forever, or, you know, it's absolutely okay for our families to also move on eventually, you know, when they've gone through what they've gone through, when they found peace with it, when they've been able to share their experiences with others and find closure and healing. And then they want to move on to something else or some other organization or some other cause. And that is absolutely okay. We're grateful and we will walk with someone and alongside someone as long as they need us, as long as they want us. But we also recognize that sometimes for people to fully heal, they also need to move on. And that's okay too. We say that everyone's experience with this is different, whether you're the caregiver, whether you're the person living with the disease, and your healing process is different too. And just because it doesn't look like the person next to you or your neighbor whose you know, family member was lost to, to Alzheimer's doesn't mean that it's wrong. And we say the same thing for caregiving too. As long as your loved one is safe, and you are doing the best that you can, that is all that anyone can ask of you. Kelsey, this has been fantastic. And I know there are probably a lot of people that are listening right now that would love to know how they can either connect with you if they're in our local area here in Middle Tennessee, or how they can connect to some of the resources that you've been talking about in their areas. I think you mentioned, you were talking about that AARP kind of resource center. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about how people can find you? And I will also get some links and I will include those in the show notes. Okay, awesome. So the AARP and Alzheimer's Association Community Resource Finder, there's two different web links you can use. 
I don't know why we have two different ones, but whatever one people remember works great. So you have alz.org, which is just our traditional website, slash CRF, Community Resource Finder, or you have communityresourcefinder.org. Either of those will take you to the exact same place, which is the homepage of that resource database where the educational webinars, social engagement programs, Pelotown halls, all of the virtual support groups, all of that is listed on there. And then we, I did also mention our 24-7 helpline number, which I think is always a helpful resource, but particularly during this time when people have questions and need support or education or just a simple question answered any time, they can reach the, our master's level clinicians and our support staff there at 1-800-272-3900. And then I'm happy to share my contact as well. So my email address is kewilliams, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S, at alz.org. And then my office line is 615-622-4182. So people are, you know, certainly welcome to reach out to me if they need a resource that isn't me and just want me to connect them to it. I'm certainly happy to do that. I do always, you know, share the helpline number because I'm available office hours, but we know questions don't always come up during office hours. Questions come up in the middle of the night and very, very early morning. And so having that helpline available, hopefully is a huge help and relief to our caregivers that they don't have to wait for for an office hour to start. They don't have to wait for, you know, the day to begin or for it to be 9 a.m. They can reach out anytime. And if they want local support or local follow-up as well, they can request that. So if they're speaking with a helpline agent or a care counselor and they want follow-up from their local staff person, whether they're in Middle Tennessee and it's me, whether they're in another state, they can certainly request that. And then that local staff person will do a follow-up as well. So Kelsey, quick question on the helpline. Yeah, I've heard people utilizing it and it is absolutely fantastic. Can you give us a little bit of a description of what kind of issues? Because I'm sure that if they called in a crisis, you'd walk them through it. If it was a 911 crisis, you'd tell them, you know, call 911. But if they're in an emotional crisis and just feeling overwhelmed, what are types of, because I know it's not just resources that you're pointing them to. Mm -hmm. It's actually walking them through if they're like, you know, as I recently heard someone referring to um, middle of the night, sitting in front of the freezer, ice cream, tears going moment. Yeah, (laughs) Those are the kinds of calls that you take as well. So tell us a little bit more about what how, why people can call the helpline, what kind of issues can be addressed. So it can be simple resource questions of, I need a neurologist in my area, or I heard there were some upcoming educational webinars. Can you share with me what those are? To the more complicated things, like you just said, we do care consultations. We have master's level clinicians that are available to have one-on-one conversations, to make action plans, to address concerns that you have about your loved one to troubleshoot problems that might be arising and brainstorm some different ways to to address those problems whether it's you know your loved one maybe they aren't eating because they 
don't have the processing to be able to go into the fridge to recognize you need to put this item with this item to make a sandwich. And so when they're on their own, you don't find them eating. Could go through some different potential, you know, options or ideas to address that of what if you got a food drawer or a food basket with easy, ready to go snacks that can easily be opened, that are somewhat nutritious, that they don't have to rely on someone else, you know, depending on obviously the stage of, that they're in and the progression of the disease. But, you know, troubleshooting something like that to say, well, what if you you have some snacks that are available and they're out so they don't have to search behind or in cabinets or in the refrigerator and go into drawers to find it, making things as easy, as simple, and as in view as possible. You know, I've heard people talk about how difficult it can be sometimes to recognize different rooms. And, you know, maybe you put an image of a toilet on the bathroom door, or you, you know, label the bathroom with bathroom, you know, little things like that, that can certainly be it. It also could just be, I'm so overwhelmed and I don't know what to do. And then, you know, the helpline care consultant will say, well, you know, tell me a little bit more about that and kind of will help guide you to maybe the core of that problem. So you don't have to have a very specific question when you call. It could just say, I think I need some help, but I'm not really sure what that help is. And, you know, they're very well trained and can kind of help assess what that greatest need is and develop some plans in place to to address and, you know, hopefully fix and rectify those needs. So all of that is free. Yes. Correct. 100%. Free. And if if people need additional, like if they're calling and they're very overwhelmed, obviously this is not ongoing counseling for them. Yeah. They would then refer them to the appropriate mm-hmm. people. But it is it is kind of like a helpline, a resource line, an after hours crisis line. You all are not alone. I mean, the caregivers out there, you're not alone. This is a great resource for anybody to utilize. So I'm so glad that you all do that. And you have that available for people. There's so much wonderfulness going on (laughs) with the Alzheimer's Association. And there's so much more. I mean, this could easily be like a four hour conversation, which no one wants to listen to on a podcast. But there is so much that we do that we have available. There's so much information and so many resources out there that again, don't make this perfect. This is still going to be hard, but hopefully with education, with support, with connection, it can be manageable. Couldn't be better said. Thank you, Kelsey. Of course. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your insight and just your passion for what you do. And you can bring meaning with that to other people and helping them through what they're going through now. Robin and I both completely appreciate you and all of the support you've given us along the way. And we will be talking to you soon and probably seeing your emails here. And <laughs> like, please stop sending me quite so many emails. Oh, that's just it. It's like, there's so much great information. We we stay plugged in. It's kind of like a pulse on what to stay plugged into. So we, we very much appreciate that. And I appreciate you. So thank you for coming on today. And thank you so much for having me. Again, we could not do any of the things that we do as an organization without wonderful community partners and volunteers like you and Robin. So 
I really want to be the one to say thank you because you make such a huge difference in the lives of those impacted by dementia in Middle Tennessee and beyond with this podcast, with Daughters on Fire, with your support group, and just with y'all's hearts for, for this cause and for those impacted by it. So I appreciate you guys. I know the listeners do too. And so hopefully this was a little bit of helpful information about the work of the association. And I'll, of course, be happy to take any follow-up questions from people. Um, I would love to be a resource as best I can be for any family that needs it. And really, we can't do this without each other. Thanks, Kelsey. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and ask that you subscribe to this podcast. If you find this podcast helpful, please leave a review so we can reach more women like you. You are not alone on your journey, and the Fire Tribe is here to support you. Check us out at DaughtersOnFire.com and our Facebook group for more support and resources. Until next time, remember, you are the fire that fuels the engine of life.